Morning Africa and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today's Wednesday, June the 8th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. UN agencies are warning of famine in Somalia and the surge of child death across the Horn of Africa due to drought. We have an estimated 386,000 children in Somalia who are in desperate need of treatment for life-threatening severe acute malnutrition. Now, if I compare this to 2011, which was a famine year, we are now exceeding the numbers we had then, which were 340,000 children that required treatment at that time. The East African Legislative Assembly calls on member states to prevent, control, and reduce small arms and light weapons. There are too many small illicit arms in the hands of civilians. What you hear to be fighting to be civil war in South Sudan is being conducted by civilians. And these are communities. They are using it against the government. They are using it against themselves. And in Nigeria, the national men's and women's basketball teams call on President Buhari to reverse a two-year ban from international games imposed by authorities last month. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Debrek Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, UN agencies are warning of famine in Somalia and the surge of child death across the Horn of Africa. If there are appeals for urgently needed funds to save the lives of hundreds of thousands of hungry, malnourished children remain unmet. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The Horn of Africa is experiencing its fourth consecutive year of failed rains, a climate event not seen in at least 40 years. If the drought persists, the World Food Program warns as many as 20 million people will be suffering from acute hunger by the end of the year. UNICEF reports more than 1.7 million children across Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia are in urgent need of treatment for severe acute malnutrition, the deadliest form of the condition. Rania Dagash Kamara is UNICEF Deputy Regional Director, Eastern and Southern Africa. Speaking from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, she says the risks are particularly high for children in Somalia who now are living on the front lines of the climate crisis. We have an estimated 386,000 children in Somalia who are in desperate need of treatment for life-threatening severe acute malnutrition. Now, if I compare this to 2011, which was a famine year, we are now exceeding the numbers we had then, which were 340,000 children that required treatment at that time. More than a quarter million people died in the Somali famine of 2011, half of them children under age five. Dagash Kamara says children are dying from a combination of malnutrition and killer diseases such as measles and cholera. She says the drought has killed crops and livestock and dried up water sources. Children are starving and do not have the defenses to fight off the deadly impact of malnutrition and disease. She notes the lives of children in the Horn of Africa also are at increased risk because of the war in Ukraine. Somalia alone used to import 92% of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine, but supply lines are now blocked. And the war is exacerbating spiraling global food and fuel prices, meaning that many in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia 
can no longer afford the basic foodstuffs they need to survive. At the same time, UN agencies are cash poor. They lack the money needed to run their life-saving humanitarian operations. UNICEF has received just a third of its $250 million appeal for the Horn of Africa. The World Food Program says it needs $274 million to scale up life-saving food and nutrition for more than 4 million people in Somalia over the next six months. The agencies are appealing for critical support from the G7, which will meet in Germany later this month. They say the G7 advanced countries have it within their power to stave off a catastrophe that need not and must not happen. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The International Monetary Fund says Malawi's government must address its unsustainable public debt and false information it provided the lender before it can resume getting loans. Malawi has been seeking a credit extension to address a struggling economy and a foreign currency shortage that forced a devaluation of its currency in May. The IMF in 2020 suspended its extended credit facility to Malawi, one of Africa's poorest nations, over economic mismanagement. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. Malawi wants renewed access to the IMF's Extended Credit Facility, or ECF, after a two-year halt. In 2020, the IMF cancelled a planned 70 million US dollars in loans to Malawi after it came to light that former President Peter Mutalika gave the lender false information about how ECF funds were being used. The investigations into the matter last year led to the arrest of the former governor of the Reserve Bank of Malawi, Nalitsogabambe, and former finance minister, Joseph Mwanamvega. In a statement released Monday at the end of a week-long mission in Malawi, aimed at discussing terms of resumption of the ECF, the IMF said Malawi should first meet certain conditions. Among those, the IMF asked Malawi to address what it called the country's unsustainable public debt and to produce a report on allegations the country was giving false information between 2018 and 2020 about the administration of ECF funds. Sosten Gwengwe is Malawi's finance minister. He told a news conference Monday the government has engaged a debt advisor to help the country address its problem. For us to be able to do that, we needed technical expertise. And the advice from the fund was that we get uh, a professional qualified debt advisor. And that's uh, why we recruited the Global Sovereign Advisory of France. Uh, They've been in the country from last week. And uh, they also hope to be able to put together that debt strategy for us in the next one week, maximum uh, two weeks. Gwengwe said a report on alleged falsification of documents on ECF funds is also in its final stages. The interim report is uh, out, but uh, the substantive report should be coming out uh, mid uh, this month. So once these two documents are on the table, then we'll re-engage again for a staff-level agreement, which must be taken to their board mid-July. Economic experts say the ECF is now the only program that can help bail Malawi out of its dire economic straits. Bechani Cheleni is a lecturer in economics 
at Malawi University of Business and Applied Science. I am aware behind the government on this one that we need the ECF. There might be issues that we have. We are trying to do our best. Yes, we know we've got some bad apples within the system that may not be helping as well. But uh, the bottom line is that we need those resources. However way that they are going to make those resources available to us as Maoris. The IMF says it will make its final decision on the resumption of the ECF to Malawi at its body meeting scheduled for July. Lamik Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Debrick Africa continues. The East African Legislative Assembly is calling on member states to prevent, control and reduce small arms and light weapons. This comes after a new regional report indicates that the proliferation of illicit weapons continues to threaten peace and security in the region. Moses Javierimana reports from Arusha. The East African Legislative Assembly released a new report on Tuesday indicating the rapid increase of small arms and light weapons, despite member states being signature to the Nairobi Protocol for the Prevention, Control and Reduction of Small Arms and Light Weapons in the Great Lakes region, the Horn of Africa and bordering states. Gabriel Garang Alak is a member of the East African Legislative Assembly from South Sudan. Attention must be paid to the Republic of South Sudan. There are too many small illicit arms in the hands of civilians. What you hear to be fighting to be civil war in South Sudan is being conducted by civilians. And these are communities. They are using it against the government. They are using it against themselves. As we consider peace and security be the prerequisites for any social and economic development in the region, if we have not addressed this, then you will eventually lose South Sudan in the process of integration. According to a report by the United Nations Trust Facility Supporting Cooperation on Arms Regulation, the total number of both legal and illegal guns held by civilians in South Sudan stood at 3 million in 2013. That number dropped to 1.2 million in 2017. According to the Regional Assembly's report, Uganda has collected and destroyed 98,000 assorted weapons from 2013 to 2019. Paul Musamali is a lawmaker from Uganda speaks about the successful disarmament of an ethnic group in the country's northeast region. Uganda did its part to disarm the armed Karamojongs. And these Karamojongs, as we talk now, they are vulnerable because of the armed civilians from Kenya and also the Toposa from uh, South Sudan. We are all the time lamenting and the people are dying. In East Africa, we have a problem. We keep on adding all the time. We do not have a permanent peace and conflict resolution mechanism. More than 320 tons of small arms and light weapons were destroyed between 2011 to 2017 in Rwanda. Meanwhile, from 2009 to 2021, Burundi collected more than 33,000 small arms and light weapons and 477,000 ammunition. That included more than 29,000 small arms and light weapons and 406,000 ammunitions have been destroyed. Fatuman Dangiza is a lawmaker from Rwanda. There's been an increase in illicit small arms and light weapons within the region, including East Africa. And this poses a threat to peace and security, and it has led to escalation of armed conflict, transboundary crimes, sustained poaching, cattle wrestling, terrorism, and other serious crimes in the East African region. Some member states like Burundi 
are working to implement the provisions of the Nairobi Protocol. A national law has been drafted on the import, export, transfer and transit of small arms and light weapons. However, the draft has not yet been considered and adapted by the cabinet. The regional assembly is calling for strict measures to control and curb the importation of illicit weapons, especially through main ports of Mombasa and Dar es Salaam. Moses Aviarimana, VOA Africa, Arusha, Tanzania. In Nigeria, the national men's and women's basketball teams are seeking a meeting with President Muhammadu Buhari. They're asking him to reverse a two-year ban from international games imposed by authorities last month. The ban cost Nigeria its slot at the World Cup despite qualifying. Timothy Obiezu has more. The players of the women's national team, D-Tigris, and their male counterparts, D-Tigris, held a joint virtual meeting on Twitter over the weekend to protest the ban and to discuss the way forward. During the meeting, the players said the ban watered down years of efforts and achievement. Last Thursday, a statement by the International Basketball Federation of FIBA announced Mali will replace Nigeria and said it could not confirm Nigeria's participation at the September FIBA World Cup in Australia. FIBA further explained its decision was meant to enable adequate preparation for the participating teams. The statement said, quote, given the multiple strict deadlines that cannot be postponed, the FIBA Executive Council has decided Nigeria's withdrawal is confirmed, end quote. The basketball governing body also said it will announce whether there will be additional disciplinary measures. On Sunday, Toronto Raptors president Masai Ujiri and Boston Celtics coach Ime Udoka, both Nigerian citizens, spoke against the decision by Nigeria's government. Back home, one resident of Abuja, Satar Peter, is also worried. It is very bad that our government do not take sports seriously. And it shows the level at which the the leadership of the, the whole the association is, is done. Like we are really backward at the international level when it comes to sport and things like this would rather taint our image. It's so sad to hear the excuses that comes from the Minister of Sport about why the, the, the association will withdraw from the competition. The two-year ban could potentially rule out any chance of Nigerian teams qualifying for the 2024 Olympics. Nigerian authorities said the withdrawal was an effort to address issues back home and, in their words, revamp the game from the grassroots. The idea is to produce more homegrown players for international competitions and attract sponsors within two years. Nigeria has for long relied on its citizens living abroad for tournaments, whereas authorities say homegrown talent is neglected. The Nigerian Basketball Federation, the NBBF, has also been struggling to address leadership tussles after the federation elected two different presidents in parallel elections in January. Neither of them has agreed to cede power to the other and has led to factions in the federation. The government said it wants to appoint an interim management committee to run the federation until its issues are resolved. On Sunday, Sports Minister Sunday Dari urged the committee to develop and oversee domestic leagues. Adiria Daniel is a sports analyst. It doesn't spell well. 
I feel bad because the D-Tigress have given too much. Uh, it's just extremely draining politics that has made a, a mock of this beautiful game called uh, basketball. And um, I think the earlier this is settled, the better. We're bound for success and then this had to happen. So it's a big blow for the players. It's a big blow for the Federation. This is smashing hopes. Both the Nigerian men and women's teams took part in the Tokyo Olympics last summer, during which the men's team beat the world champion U.S. team in an exhibition match. D-Tigress won the FIBA Afro Basket Championship for the third time in a row to qualify for the World Cup. It's not clear whether authorities will reverse the ban soon, but for players and citizens like Peter, will be hoping they do. I'm Timothy Obiezu for VOA News in Abuja, Nigeria. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. Ethiopian authorities are refusing to release three detained journalists despite a court order that they be given bail. Halima Atumani reports from Addis Ababa. Solomon Shumie, Miaza Muhammad, and Temesgen Disalen appeared before the Federal First Instance Court Tuesday morning and were granted bail of about $190 each. But to their dismay, the Federal Police Force immediately appealed the judge's decision at the High Court. The High Court overruled the lower court's decision and the three journalists were returned to police custody. Their lawyer, Henok Atlilu, tells VOA he was expecting this to happen, but will continue to seek their release. These things are very much common when politically motivated uh, cases come to courses, especially journalists who are very much critical of the regime. So I was not surprised. You know, they give you a bail in the lower court and it will be overturned by the higher court. The three journalists are among 19 arrested last month in a crackdown aimed at reporters who have been critical of Prime Minister Abi Ahmed's government. The government accuses the journalists of inciting violence and disturbing the country's peace through their work. Henock tells VOA it is now not clear when the journalists will next appear in court. So we were appealing to the court that there needs to be some reasonable suspicion by the police to arrest someone. But the police, you know, the police are the police, so they they come up with all kinds of stories which are not substantiated by any real evidences. Authorities have accused Temes Gendisalen, editor of privately owned Fete magazine, of inciting violence and public disturbance through unspecified interviews published on YouTube. Solomon Shumie, a current affairs talk show host, is accused of inciting violence on his show. It is still not clear what accusations Miazam Muhammad faces. The Committee to Protect Journalists has condemned the arrest of the 19 and called for the Ethiopian government to unconditionally release them. Henok says he has now filed an appeal before the Supreme Court, so the case does not become a criminal matter but is instead handled under Ethiopia's media proclamation law, which prohibits the detention of journalists. Halima Afmani for VA News, Addis Ababa. Children in Cameroon's capital demonstrated earlier this week against the use of child soldiers in the country's separatist conflict, as well as displacement of families and other issues stemming from the fighting. Several hundred children took part in the protest as part of the events 
ahead of the UN's World Day against child labor on June the 12th. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yawunde in Cameroon. Crowds of children marched through the streets of Cameroon's capital, Yawunde, on Monday, holding placards that called for an end to abuse of kids in the country's separatist conflict. The majority of the several hundred child protesters were displaced from Cameroon's western regions by ongoing fighting between the rebels and government troops. Aid and rights groups organized the protest as a build-up to the United Nations World Day Against Child Labor on June 12. Blessing Associates for Women and Children, a group that defends the rights of vulnerable women and children, is among those that took part in the protest. The group's coordinator, Baye Frida Ebay, says even children displaced from the conflict areas are subjected to abuse. There are children between the ages of 5 to 14 who are engaged in plantation activities. It is our collective responsibility to give these children a second chance in life. These are children who are already been traumatized because of the ongoing armed conflict. They have lost parents. They have lost their homes. So it is very, very important for us to look at this issue of child labor and stop it. The UN and Cameroon government say children in the troubled western regions face violence, kidnapping, being forced into early marriage and recruitment by armed groups. Capo Daniel is the self-proclaimed deputy defense chief of the Ambazonian Defense Forces, one of Cameroon's rebel groups. He denies the UN and government's claim that separatists are recruiting child soldiers but admits they have used force to shut down schools. Our code of conduct forbids the use of child soldiers. The few weapons we have, we give it to the best trained soldiers, and all of the time, those are adults. We cannot allow Cameroon State schools to operate in our territory while we are engaged in war against the Cameroon State. As an alternative, we have opened community schools where our forces have total control. Cameroon's military says the rebels use seized schools as training grounds for fighters. Cameroon's Minister of Social Affairs, Pauline Irene Gene, says the military has taken back many of the schools that were used by rebels. The children protesting Monday also called for an end to early marriage, female genital mutilation, FGM, and child sex trafficking. Gene held the children for demonstrating against the abuses. Nous allons poursuivre cette opération à travers les médias, dans les communautés et les familles, par les travailleurs. Gene says she is happy that the children have come out themselves to tell Cameroonians that all children have fundamental human rights. She says social workers should educate communities that children should be in schools, not on plantations. Children should not serve as domestic or plantation workers and should not be forced into prostitution, says Ngene. She says female genital mutilation is a human rights abuse and people who practice it will be severely punished. Human Rights Watch in 2021 reported that government troops committed abusive counterattacks on rebels and their alleged supporters that impacted the region's children and education. Cameroon's military denies any abuses of targeting of civilians. The UN says Cameroon's separatist conflict 
which began in 2017, has deprived more than 700,000 children of education. Moki Edwin Kinzuka for VOA News, Yawunde, Cameroon. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Instagram. We are also on Twitter and on YouTube where you can watch our videos. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Next up, empowering women's leadership. We talk with the founder and CEO of Vital Voices Global Partnership, Elise Nelson, on the 25th anniversary of the NGO, co-founded by two former secretaries of state, Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright. Nelson tells us about the opening of its Washington, D.C. headquarters and the goal of promoting women leadership around the world. That's Press Conference USA.